when I was young and seeing that there was a connection between telling stories and, and performing and that leading to to earning money, you know, for me and for my family that enabled me to go to, you know, private school and help out with, with bills and stuff like that, that I've always had the belief that we can earn an income more than just get by by doing stuff that, that we really enjoy. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Adam Ward. Adam is a multi-hyphenate artist whose medium is Lego. He's been described as the Bob Ross of Lego. I wanted to talk with Adam after I learned about his work from a friend of mine because I'm interested in creative people, I'm interested in nice people, and I'm also interested in people who manage to make a living to earn some money from their passion, particularly when it makes a difference for other people, when it enhances their enjoyment of life, it helps them grow, and that's something that Adam has found a way to do. He's got a show on YouTube that's produced in partnership with Soul Pancake called Brick by Brick, and he's also worked with so many amazing companies, creating installations for them, making art from Lego. Companies like Zappos, events like the Oscars, Warner Brothers, Tumblr, collaborating with Nestle and Microsoft and, and many others. He's worked on the Batman Lego movie, as well as the Lego Master show on Fox. In this interview, we talk about when his love of Lego began, when he set it aside, and when he picked it back up again. That's a pattern that I have lived. Maybe you've seen it in your own life, that there was something that you used to love to do as a kid. You did it all the time. Maybe you put it on the shelf, packed it away, forgot about it. Maybe you too resumed it and found the joy that it brings into your life and the life of others, or maybe you haven't. I think this is actually a pretty common pattern. Adam might serve as a model of inspiration for you. Perhaps in this interview, we talk about things like when he moved from where he grew up in Minnesota to Los Angeles with $400 in his pocket and very little plan, what he learned by jumping in, rolling up his sleeves, finding ways to earn money and contribute to others, and how all of that contributed ultimately to his role as this Lego artist entrepreneur that he is today. I think that Adam is an extraordinary example of aligning his values with his actions and you'll hear that when you listen to how he chose to spend his time while growing a business, being married, having a daughter, and to see if perhaps any of that serves as inspiration or a model for your own living. We also talk about the new book Adam has created or is in the process of creating. It'll come out early in 2021. This book, whose title is Brick by Brick. Adam's passion and enthusiasm for his subject comes through. 
I feel like he's the kind of person that if you had even one friend who had that kind of passion and enthusiasm for anything, you would probably consider yourself fortunate. What if you were that person? If you don't already know about Adam's work, you can learn more about it by visiting YouTube, searching Peace and Bricks. You can visit peaceandbricks.com or find him on Instagram at peaceandbricks. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thanks for listening. Adam, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Stoked to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here too. Adam, will you tell me please, what's life about? (laughs) Just just starting off real, real with with an easy one. Let's just get that out of the way. Everything else is just a a breeze. (laughs) Life, yeah, I'm, I'm 37 years in and still certainly figuring it out, but it feels like it must be about connection and it must be about creating something. Those are, are two of the things that, that have been like a through line to, my, to not only my happiness, but also my fulfillment and a through line to the things that have led to the greatest adventures and the most interesting discoveries. I think love is also a no-brainer, but I think love is right there in, in connection. And when we are creating from, from joy, when we are creating from love, I think that it is a fuel that allows us to, to make things that without, without love, without joy, without those things, there's no way we'd be able to, to create. Yeah. No, I, I love that answer. When people ask you who you are and what you do, how do you like to answer that question? Or maybe when somebody introduces you from a stage, you know, and I realize that might change from person to person, place to place, but typically, how do you answer? Who are you? What do you do? I'm I'm Adam Ward. Uh, multi-hyphenate is occasionally used, but definitely creator, builder, artist are, are words that I can I can relate to. Husband, father, also, of course, son, and yeah, what I do is I I make things. I I work with Lego as a medium. It's the medium I'm most fluent in. So I've been labeled a Lego artist or brick artist, and that's totally fine. And I like to do things beyond that. I also host a show where I teach people and hopefully inspire people to build and to create their own things that maybe they forgot that they knew how or didn't think that they knew how. And yeah, those are the things that I spend a lot of, a lot of my time doing. That's so beautiful. Now, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have two shows because you've got a show, you got a channel on YouTube, a show on YouTube with Soul mm-hmm. Pancake, right? And then is there something about Fox as well? No. So I, so there's a, a show out now called Lego Masters on Fox, which is like top chef, but instead of making amazing meals, these people are making amazing builds. Ah. I was ruled ineligible because I'm a professional. And oh, because you're a, too pro. <laughs> I feel I've done work with Lego in the past as a builder, which was a little bit of a bummer because I think it would have been an absolute blast. But then Fox hired me to build some stuff to promote the show. So, That's so I great. built this nearly six foot tall unicorn. Yes, Bessie. Bessie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell us about Bessie. Oh, man. The maybe not the highest brick count build I've done before, but certainly in a lot of ways, the most challenging and the most ambitious. Bessie is a like five foot seven, five foot eight, you know, depending on whether she's wearing uh, shoes or not. Unicorn, who's like mid leap. 
and she has a horn and she has a mane and tail made of beautiful rainbow bricks and she is powered by a team of lady robots <laughs> and it was a, a wonderful crazy experience building 275 hours to build bessie with 125,000 oh, yeah. bricks did you do this solo or did you have help or what how'd you do this i had wonderful help i was supported by some some friends and some fellow brick artists and lego builders I don't know if I could have done it alone. I probably couldn't. I mean, I probably could have if I had more time, but it certainly wouldn't have been as fun and it certainly wouldn't have been as beautiful. I think that, you know, collaborating with people and seeing their points of views and bringing other techniques and ideas to the table are, is always really great when you can do that with a project. Well, and then Bessie went out on the streets of Los Angeles. Is that right? Like is at, a, <laughs> at a bus shelter or something? That's exactly, that's exactly right. So this this wild team called Illumivation, they specialize in non-traditional advertising. So they take over all sorts of different spaces. So it, think of it almost like a billboard, but instead of you know a big flat image on top of a building, this was a 3D image that we built on the back of a bus stop. So it's this like two feet deep by you know 12 feet wide by seven feet tall, like museum glass basically that's just on the back of this bus stop. So it was bringing art to a place where there's not normally art. It was bringing a lot of fun and whimsy. There's some fun little like Easter eggs inside of the build. So if you spend more time looking at it, you could see some interesting things going on. And it was just a cool celebration of, of building and ingenuity and creativity in support of this new Lego competition show called uh, Lego Masters. That's so awesome. Yeah. And now the build is going to Legoland, which is super exciting. Oh, nice. I've never had a build at Legoland before. It's kind of like the... Now uh, you've made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it certainly feels really exciting. But I'll be Dude, able to... congrats, man. That's really cool. To, to take my daughter and go to Legoland and she gets... Yeah. You're like, that's mine. That's so cool. So when... I mean, you've done work with a lot of cool companies. Like you're saying, you've wor you work or have worked directly with Lego, which I want to hear about because I know your initial, you know, request to Lego went, you know, declined or un unresponded to. But since then, you know, doing installations in Zappos, the Oscars, Tumblr, Warner Brothers, Genentech, like all these places. And I, I might get myself in trouble by asking this, but... What does it look like for somebody to commission something with you? Do you do that? How do you decide? You know, how do you price? Because part of what I think will be interesting to listeners, and it's certainly interesting to me, is that somebody can follow a passion, find a way to serve people, earn money doing it. You know, where I understand you moved to LA, what, from Minnesota with like 200 bucks in your pocket? Yeah, but it was maybe like four, four, four hundred. Okay, so a couple <laughs> yeah, hundred bucks. It's money's long gone. Yeah, um, yeah. It was it was a bold step coming out to to Los Angeles. Initially embarking and pursuing entertainment. Spent a lot of time as as a kid acting and doing plays and commercials and then I a science TV show for a couple of years and was able to kind of do that consistently. And then took a break to go get a college degree after high school. What was your, what was your degree in? I majored in psychology. So okay. I wanted to just learn something else that had always been really interesting to me. And to, to major in acting or some sort of performing art, it felt like that's what I had been doing for so long already that I wanted to try something else. And I found it endlessly fascinating and super interesting. 
I also knew pretty quickly that I wasn't going to pursue it as a as a field professionally. So after college, I moved back to Minneapolis for about 10 months. I was a counselor at a theater camp. I got a couple of commercial gigs. I directed some plays at a, a assistant directed some plays at a children's theater and saved <laughs> that $400 <laughs> um, basically and just put put my, my chips in and moved to LA. That's amazing. Did you do the thing where you took a Greyhound bus or you, you know? I flew initially and to kind of figure some things out. And then I flew back to Minneapolis and got, and then brought my car out and I drove. I did, did the road trip. I did it solo over two days. So let me, let me just go back to that that piece that I'm personally curious about, and maybe somebody listening to this will all want to know the answer to too about a commission. Hmm. Oh, right, know, right, right. How does that like how does that typically come about and, and how does that go? Great question. I've kind of even without knowing by being an actor and a writer and building this community in Los Angeles, I've always been doing many, many different things. So when I was coming out first to act, I was like doing like Craigslist jobs and gigging and just like kind of making money however I could. People get murdered from Craigslist, don't they? I mean, like, isn't that the thing? I, unfortunately, I think people in some areas get murdered doing anything, but yeah, that wasn't. it can be sketchy. But you, so you're responding to Craigslist looking for ways yeah, to I'd just like, earn I'd, money. I like built furniture for some companies like an Ikea assembler. I delivered flowers on Mother's Day. I did all these things. This is before like Lyft and, and Uber, which I think would have made my life much easier, but it maybe wouldn't. I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much because I did so many different things. And one of the things I got into is event production. So I met so many people doing events for, you know, the Oscars, for TV Guide, for movie premieres, for all of these things that without even knowing it, my network was expanding. And my realization from working on Craigslist was like, every time you work with somebody, you know, they may hire you for a day to build a desk for their office. But if you do a great job, you show up, you're wonderful, you're on time, you exceed their expectations, who knows, it could lead to more work. So that, that's been my mentality kind of always. Like they're hiring me to do this so far, but I look at every job as kind of just a foot in the door. So my goal is always to, to exceed the expectation of, of my client, whoever I'm working for. Yeah, and, um, and, I, and that's one of the things I love so much about this that I just want to call out for a moment. The, the, the coach in me, the nerd in me, that you know, we all have these, these beliefs that we're sometimes not even aware of or a worldview or a filter, whatever you might call it. And something like that, like that ultimately what I'm understanding is that's actually a very empowering belief for you. That like when you meet this person, they hire you to do a task, but that this might go somewhere really special, right? And, and to live with a belief like that, that empowers and serves you and other people is very different than either living without it or with a disempowering one, you know? So that's, anyway, I just wanted to kind of call that out, but Yeah, no, thank cool. you. Thank you for, for pointing that out. And I think like, I think we all believe it to an extent. You know, people go out with their friends just to like go play darts or have a drink or, you know, throw a frisbee at the park, whatever it is. But how often do those ventures lead to like meeting a new friend group or somebody that you want to take on a date or these other things? Like, I think a lot of us are open to it, maybe in some aspects of life, but not across the board. So I think I've just been working on letting that empowering belief spread out through like, you know, social encounters, work encounters, artistic endeavors. 
And then some people, I would imagine, because they learn, you know, that you have this broad skill set and you're very affable, a very pleasant person. And then at some point they learn about your passion for Lego and what you've now accomplished. And they're like, hey, that's pretty cool. We have a corporate headquarters that we'd love you to come do this neat thing. And then do they just give you kind of like a like carte blanche and some kind of a budget or how does it, how's it happen? So it's interesting. It, it kind of starts off being you know, like in negotiation, you never want to be the first one to say a number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> negotiation advice. So maybe so, we shouldn't reveal here. Maybe oh no, we it, shouldn't. It, You're like, it's price <laughs> per brick. <laughs> Well, certainly the amount of bricks has a huge impact on on the cost of the piece because even though I have a great relationship with Lego and I have access to to some discounted bricks and I have ways of sourcing lots of bricks that you know that average person may not, Lego's still expensive. <laughs> and yeah. when you think about it as a toy, it is, you know, a higher price point toy, but then when you start thinking about it at these large scales of a hundred square feet of Lego mm-hmm. or, you know, 300 pounds of Lego, or when you're doing three dimensional renderings of sculptures and things like that, the brick count, just like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's another place, if I may, just to jump in for a minute. Part of what I love about this is that for any one of us who have a passion, who have a creative impulse, that if we really want to bring it into the world, at some point, we've got to confront these realities from, I want to make a movie to who's going to star in it and how much mm-hmm. am I going to pay him? And you know, what is this, like all this stuff that you, I, part of why I want to interview and what I love about this is that you've been able to do this in a really fun way and you master in some ways. I mean, obviously I don't know your business background and all that, but in some way that it's happening and it seems to be sustainable. It's been a few years and I think a lot of people want to do that, but they maybe don't know how. So thanks for kind of sharing the, the, how, how it really happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, off the topic of, of, of Lego, but before I launched my business is when I think I learned the most because I helped some friends start a food truck. I had always been, you know, since I moved to Los Angeles in 2005, been creating, you know, been been making things and sometimes it was taking up all of my time and sometimes it was taking up a very small amount of my time. So I always had a second job or a third job or a fourth job. I was always figuring out other things. And I got really obsessed with this idea of residual income. Like I maybe, I mean, I, I definitely read some books and I was like podcasts weren't huge yet back then. What'd you read? Like Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income? Oh, what's, oh my God, I'm blanking it. What's it called? Napoleon Hill's book. Oh, Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. I yeah, read that. Of course. Four Hour Work Week. Yeah, I listened to the Four Hour Work Week maybe. I know I didn't read it. <laughs> like if, if I was in school, I would say that I read it, but I definitely didn't read it. But like I gleaned a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I had this idea. And then kind of serendipitously, there were some friends from Minnesota who wanted to open up a restaurant in LA, but at the same time, the food truck boom was happening and they didn't really know much about LA real estate. It sounded like they were maybe being pushed in a strange direction. So I suggested a food truck. And then I had another friend just who happened to have what I thought was a killer food truck idea so I introduced them all and this business very quickly started happening. What was the idea? Gourmet nachos. I love that. The nacho truck. It was, the food was amazing. The food was delicious. The, the problem was not the product. The problem was a number of cash flow and like kind of differences in vision and a lot of energy, but not all focused on the same goal or even focused in the same direction. So the nacho truck came onto the scene did very well. 
hit some kind of like of the thinner months had a, nothing really like go sideways or wrong, but I think it just took more than some of us expected. So we close it after 11 months, but in those 11 months, I basically figured out a lot of don'ts, but even more so than that, a bunch of do's in how to create a business and how to turn an idea into an actual, into an actual thing, a tangible. What are a few of those things? I'm sure a lot of people listening want to know without <laughs> having to go through the nacho truck experience of their own. What are the do's? The biggest do is, is simply to do, is not to just think and gestate and brainstorm and keep ideas you know, in, in pre-production. Analyze. But is to move to actual production. Yeah. Is, to not, is to like visit the commissary where all the food trucks you know, park and charge the batteries and, and get clean. Is to like go to the wholesale food suppliers and seeing what you're like really just doing it uh -huh. demystifies all of these things. And it really did a lot to, to remind me and to encourage me to, to act. Because even if an action is coming from an uninformed place, so mm -hmm. often the action itself supports the information that you are missing when you started. And even yeah. if you make a mistake, most mistakes are either undoable or at the very least, you can learn from them so you're not doing them again. And wow. hopefully, if we're doing, you know, there are things like, <laughs> you know, skydiving or cage fighting or like some of these things like that you pass this line and it's like if you make a mistake, it's a wrap or you've, you know, really maybe physically hurt yourself. But I think, you know, just getting in the pool is the way to get wet. You can like sit on the side, you can look, you can be in the chaise lounge, you can have your book. You play. If you want to get, you know, you want to swim, you have to get into the pool. And there's, you can cannonball, you can go up to the high dive, but you can also just like put your feet in. As long as you're making progress into getting in, I think you'll get there. Well, I love the way you've said that too. I mean, if you want to swim, you've <laughs> got to get to the pool. You know, so, okay. And I, I realize at this point, I might be boring listeners with this following this line of inquiry, but I do want to make sure we complete it about this thing about how a commission becomes a reality. So we've talked about all this stuff. And then at some point, I imagine there's a proposal, there's a negotiation, a number's agreed to, you make time on your schedule. That's, that's basically the framework of it. And one of the, one of the things about Lego is that it's a great, so much can be done. You can imitate a logo, you can do a collaborative build, you can have something that is, you know, basically like a step and repeat wall for a lot of photo opportunities for an event or something like that. And because you can do so much, sometimes it becomes challenging to narrow the vision because it's, it's easy for me to understand what the possibilities are, but it can be challenging for some people who are less familiar with Lego to kind of see what's possible. Because a lot of people, when they think Lego, they think of, you know, yellow, blue, and red, two by two and two by four bricks. They think of squares, they think of columns, they think in a very primary colors and traditional stacked brick way. You know, I've been building for enough time and enough pieces have come out where that is, you know, one tiny little percentage of what's actually possible. But in showing a client what is truly possible, you don't want to throw so many ideas their, their way where they're like, oh, this is too much to think about. I'm overwhelmed. Let's table this for a while and come back to it. Because no matter how great the call goes or 
how on board somebody is when things are tabled and they say they'll come back to it. It's a lot like, you know, an L.A. producer saying, I love you. You're, you're not great for this role, but we're well, you know, we'll definitely work together down the line. You know, that almost never happens. So to kind of find that zone where the client has a couple options, where they don't feel like they're pigeonholed into a single path forward, but not to present so many where they're just they're just lost. That's one of the trickiest things. And then, yeah, figure out how long is it going to take? How many pieces is it going to take? What non-Lego materials? You know, are we making a two-dimensional wall that's going to go up temporarily so we have to build, you know, a, a wooden infrastructure with like, you know, four by eight panels and stands? Is there lighting? Is there glass? Is there, are we documenting this build in a time-lapse fashion? There's like all of these other things where I think a lot of what I've learned from event production have really served me in understanding what goes into a build. It's not just me at a table going like this a lot, you know, yeah, stacking yeah, tricks. Yeah. Like, how does this get to the client? And how does the piece get from the client to the to where it's being presented or shown or installed? Is it a temporary installation? Do they want to keep it after? Do I get to take up take it apart and retain the bricks after? You know, there's a million different things to think about, but you don't know that until you're actually doing it. So that's part of like, you know, the the lessons that are presented as you're already, you know, on the path or, or already in the pool. So, Adam, I understand that you have recently authored a book. Is that right? That's right. You got it. Okay. Will you tell me about it? What's it called? Who'd you write it for? And what do you want it to do for them? Yeah, the book is called Brick by Brick. It is the same name of the show that I host on Soul Pancake. So the book to me is is an analog version of the show and it does things in book form that we're unable to do in an eight minute or 12 minute or 19 minute episode and the ethos behind the book is very similar to that of the show and it is i want to inspire people to build things that they didn't know they could build that they didn't think they could build and things that they were sure they couldn't build i've done a lot of events have done a lot of teaching and the amount of times that attendees, whether they're 40 or whether they're six, whether like so often the first thing out of their mind is or out of their mouths is I can't, I can't, I don't right when I present what we're going to do. And I love turning, I love turning I can't not only into I can, but into I just did like one of my favorite transformations. So that's one of the things that has really powered the show. And I think that's one of the things that's made the show really popular. And I love connecting with people offline. So to be able to do what we do with the show, but to take a screen out of the equation so that a parent and kid or a pair of friends or two people who grew up with Lego but haven't built, you know, in 10, 15, 25 years can grab the book, grab some bricks and and make some some weird stuff some new stuff some different stuff that idea really excites me so so yeah so the book is called brick by brick it's for people who used to love lego currently love lego or didn't even think that it was for them but have some sort of like creative inkling and maybe they've never really connected with a genre of lego set before that's what it's all about that's awesome. And one of the things that I love in your story, as I understand it, in your life story, is that when you were young, you loved Lego. 
And then this seems like a parallel in my life and I think in many people's lives where they were something they were passionate about as a kid. They did it all the time. And then they put it on a shelf somewhere and forgot about it. And then life happened. And then at some point they resumed it. But I know there's a lot of people that haven't resumed that childhood passion. And I think a lot of those people are people who are miserable in their marriages or in their career. And so I'm really intrigued by the similarity for you. I think it's Lego. For me, it's books. I've always loved books and writing. It's part of why I started this podcast. But let me go there for a minute. And then I want to come back and ask a bit about the show and the book. But will you just tell me about your, like, when did you first, what's your earliest memory of Lego? And then when did you kind of set it aside and when did you come back to it? Yeah, I I talk about this in in the book because I think people can so relate to it. Because a lot of people ask, like, how did I get into this? Have you just always loved Lego? Have you been building all of your life? And now in this zoomed out kind of, I have the perspective of the current moment view. Yes, it feels like I've been building all my life. But there was a long period when I was, when I stepped away. So we moved when I was not quite two from one part of Minneapolis to another part of Minneapolis. And when we were looking at houses, I don't remember any of them except the house that we actually ended up moving into because the kid who lived there had a closet and the floor of the closet was covered in Lego. Wow. Like a mess or something built? No, just loose bricks. Okay. Just like dump loose brick onto the floor of this, the closet in his bedroom. That would eventually be my bedroom. And, and I love, by the way, that when I asked mess, you didn't say, yeah, it was a mess. You just said, no, it was a pile, it was a pile of loose bricks. <laughs> yeah, totally. So while my parents were looking at the place, I was just sitting on his floor playing. And I, and I don't know that I had ever seen Lego before, but I do remember that. Do you remember the feeling, the emotion? It was really young, obviously, like I was either just turned two or not quite two, but I'd never been interested in a closet before, I don't think, like I didn't know that there was a flake. And then there's all these colorful pieces and I was just there. And then I remember when we moved in, like I ran to the room and opened the closet and they were gone and I was pretty heartbroken. But I think that sent the message to my folks, like we got to get this kid some, some Lego. So from like two till probably 11 or 12, there wasn't a holiday, a birthday, a stellar report card, some kind of accomplishment where like the, the what I wanted wasn't Lego. Like I liked Ninja Turtles for a second, more so the show and the movie, my favorite movie of all, <laughs> the most I've ever enjoyed a movie. The four-player video game. Well, the four-player one, yes. The one for Nintendo was impossible and I kind of hated it. But the the multiplayer Turtles in Time, I think, was incredible. So for all, all these, you know, you know, Christmas, birthday, Hanukkah, whatever, I would get Lego and I was just like... What was your favorite set or some, like one or two of your favorites growing space. up? Space. I was all about space. I loved like space rovers. I loved spaceships. It felt... I think the most ripe for creativity because it was all based on things that don't exist. Whereas like a police station is there's walls and there's a ceiling and there's glass and there's the place for the bad guys and there's the little, you know, police car for the good guys. And like, I was into that and I had some city sets, but as soon as we, we went to outer space, we're dealing in unknowns. Yeah. Everything and is possible. Everything is possible. You can have a car with, you know, all of these different wheels for different, you know, Mars terrain. And you can have these like escape pods because gravity is not a factor and all these different things. So that's really what got me super duper excited. So for about 10 years, I would say I was building with Lego every single day. 
especially in Minneapolis, cold winters. I'm an only child. I was in the basement just telling stories, building with Lego. When I ran out of Lego, I would like cut a, cut open a box and like have like the cardboard flap be the ramp to connect pieces. And, and then the first Lego store was in the Mall of America there, right? Yes, it was. And it, it was, I don't know, maybe the first, in the, I don't know if it was the first in the U.S. Maybe. It was the first one I ever went to. And I was just blown away. Like it was this, it was like an amplified version of that feeling when I'd seen the closet covered in Lego as a two-year-old when I was nine, I think, when the Mall of America opened. And seeing the first large-scale build I had ever seen, because I hadn't been to Legoland. I don't know if Legoland existed at that point. Certainly, we hadn't been to Denmark. But yeah, it was very exciting. And then I remember becoming like 12, 13, 14, where some attention was going to girls, some attention was like going to what am I wearing, trying to be cool, trying to be like a little bit older, less kid-like. I'm not tall now, but as a kid, I was very small. So people always thought I was younger than I was, and that definitely affected me. It made me want to, you know, project even older. So I think that some of the play, and certainly Lego, kind of got lost in in that shuffle of me wanting to, you know, be taken seriously as a 14-year-old and, you know, how dare you guess that I'm 11 or 9 or whatever. So I was without Lego consistently, I would say, for almost 10 years. Now, when there was an opportunity to build Lego for a science project or some sort of crafty art thing for school, I would lean on Lego. I used Lego to do some, like, costume-type stuff. So I was still playing with it or using it, but it was far more sporadic than it had been for a decade. And then it wasn't until college that I just like had the idea of like, oh, I think it'd be cool to tinker, to have some Lego around, like late night building, like cool, I don't know, after class or after the bar activity, <laughs> just like make some stuff. And then it really took off in a big way when I moved to Los Angeles and was trying to furnish an apartment with no money, I called my parents and I asked them to send me some of my Lego and my dad boxed up sets that I'd forgotten I had. He'd sent everything like a pirate ship, like one of the super old first Technic sets. I got all of this stuff and I started using Lego as a tool and as a medium, but not as a toy. Like for the first time I was really seeing it as how can this improve my life now? Because to improve a seven-year-old's life, they need a Mars rover and a rocket ship and a pirate ship and these fun things to tell stories. As, you know, a 25-year-old, I needed, you know, a thing to put my keys into so I didn't lose them all the time. And like a piggy bank for my loose change and stuff to make my very crappy one-room apartment feel less bland and like bring some fun to that space. That's, that's really where my current business was born. My Lego skill was like built when I was a kid, putting in all of that time because it enabled me to then pick them back up in my mid-20s and already be competent because I have a pretty short, not short attention span, but like I want to be at least decent at something. It's, I, I, I hate sucking at things. <laughs> yeah. And that's so interesting to me to hear that you, you know, when you picked up the, the medium of your passion as a child, that you returned to it in a, in a somewhat different way. Where now these things, as you're saying, they're not toys, they're functional, but they're still in your space. And 
that's a subject of a lot of the builds on Soul Pancake and in the book, right? These are things people can make that, yeah, they're fun, but they're also useful, For right? Sure. So what are some of the things that people, like what are some of the favorite, your audience's favorite things to build? I think what makes a build work is, well, one of the things that can make a build work is the storytelling of it. So whether it's funny, whether it's interesting, whether there's a surprise, I know that is something people can really connect with. So one of the most popular episode is a puzzle box. The puzzle box that I designed, it looks a little bit like a turtle shell, so I called it Sheldon, and there's a key that's hiding inside of it. And it's not super technical, not a ton of very specific, hard-to-find pieces. It's built with almost all bricks, plates, a few tiles, and then two Technic pieces. So if you are a you know average Lego builder, maybe you have a dozen sets at home, you have these pieces. And it looks, it, and it happens like a pretty small container. So the fact that you have this kind of cool, sleek-looking box, but that so much is going on within that box, I think really excites people and surprises them. And one of the things that I get really excited about is when a build is super difficult to design, but so easy to build. Because I think people often think that they're the same. Like if it's really hard to design, it'll be really hard to build. Actually, the harder it is to design, normally the easier it is to build because there's so many iterations along that design process to make it as user-friendly as possible. Oh, that, that's the whole jobs thing, that, that simple can be harder than complex, right? For sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because I love to have like the barrier of entry for the build, especially on the show and in the book, be there for anybody. Like there's enough frustration in the world already. <laughs> there's, and Lego makes amazing sets that take a certain level of you know, pre-established skill. So I love to present people, whether it's at an event, a class, the book, the show with something that the finished product, they're like, there's no way I can do that. And then 20 minutes later, 60 minutes later, 90 minutes later, whatever it is. Boom. I just did. They, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so great. That's exactly. awesome. Now, can people, can they take a, like a spec sheet from the show or from your book to the Lego store or order online? Not to the store, but online for sure. One of the best resources is BrickLink. It's a website that Lego recently acquired and has the entire catalog of pieces sold by individual sellers. So an enormous decentralized marketplace for every Lego brick in the world. And you can order at, you know, if you need 10,000 of something, you can find it on there. It might come from a few different stores. Or if you're just looking for one piece in a very strange color or something that's kind of hard to find, you can get it. Lego stores have something called a pick-a-brick wall. It's like a bulk candy section basically in the back. You pay for a cup and you can fill it with as many pieces as you can. A ton of the stuff in the book that you can build 70 to 90% of the builds with stuff that's typically at the pick-a-brick wall, but not everybody has a Lego store nearby. And what Lego has at the pick-a-brick wall also changes a lot you know, from month to month. But the builds in the book are all about 100 pieces or fewer. So even if you have to do a little bit of digging online or make a trip or two to the Lego store or kind of rummage through your existing sets, it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to, to find those pieces. We're also talking about figuring out ways to maybe supply packs for people who want to do specific builds in the book or maybe a pack that you can't build them all at once, but a pack that you could build everything in the book 
with, you know, 300 pieces or something oh, like yeah. that. That's a great idea. There's a lot of the same pieces used over and over again. I use a lot of Swiss Army knife pieces, I call them, you know, pieces that have super high utility in a bunch of different ways. That's awesome. And and then another part, I, I know I might have mentioned this earlier in the interview, but part of what I find fascinating about your work, and, and I suspect people listening will as well, is that, it, it, again, I think you've done this incredible job of blending art and commerce or finding a way you know, to really not just practice your craft, but connect with people in the process that really lights them up. I understand that Kickstarter was a part of your journey at some point, like early on in Kickstarter too, right? So will you, I mean, we know necessity is the mother of invention and I'm not <laughs> sure if there was a practical aspect where, you know, this was like, hey, how am I going to pay the rent or, you know, put food on the table? But will you tell me a little bit about how you got started with that kind of commercial aspect? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I launched the Kickstarter campaign. I started writing the text for the Kickstarter pitch, I think, within like three days after closing the doors of the nacho truck. It was, I helped build this thing. It was successful in some ways. It was very unsuccessful in other ways. I am now 11 months older. I have no money to show for it. I ended up putting some of my own little money that I had saved into it because I believed in it and like not even thinking, knowing, believing that I would get that money back. I did not. So not only did I enter this business like not any better off, I, I, I exited this business way worse off. And I was Sounds like, like student okay. debt, man. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, what can I, what can I do? But I, as I said, I learned all of these skills of you know, turning something from an idea into a reality. Kickstarter was, was still kind of new. Uh, this is 2012. We shuttered the nacho truck in like November of 2011. And then my project, I rewrote it and did all this math to figure out the tiers. And I didn't want to launch. I couldn't launch before the holidays because there's no way I would be able to ship stuff anyway. And I didn't want to launch in January because nobody's spending money. But I launched in February of 2012. If you did the same thing you did then now, would it work or is it, was timing a factor or something? Timing was definitely a factor. I look at how I built and my approaches and some of my understandings of things, you know, now eight years ago. And I like laugh that I even thought that I could could do it. Like I kind of knew, I knew what I was doing building wise, but they're like, I'm so much better at it now that it's hard to like, And I think the world has gotten better at Lego with online communities and the creator series and the idea series. More people are exchanging ways of building that I think if I presented those ideas now, they would seem a little bit maybe out of date. I don't know. But then but but then it's it's all about where people are at on their own creative journey, because people see stuff that I built a long time ago and they're like, oh, my God, that's that's amazing. And I've like re like I've. I'm like 12 new versions uh, since then. Yeah, a lot, lot, of, lot of evolutions. So, so what did you do? So my, my idea was exactly what I was doing. It was for people who grew up with Lego but might not be a huge Harry Potter fan or Star Wars fan or like train set fan or city scene fan. Like they love Lego but they don't know how to bring it into their lives now as, as an adult. So I made coasters, I made picture frames, I made a phone dock, I made a key fob holder, made a jewelry box, a piggy bank. You gotta make a clock, don't you? Side tables, clock's a great idea. I didn't make a clock, 
but that's that's a, a terrific idea. Kleenex um, box. Yeah, I made it. I made I made a, I made a, a tissue box cover. I don't know if I made that during the Kickstarter or shortly after. Wow! So you had a lot of tears, obviously. Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to have a very low again barrier of entry that somebody saw it, thought it was novel, could throw eight dollars. I think was the lowest tier and still actually get something. So there were a ton of tiers below a hundred dollars because that's what where, what I thought people could like see it. I did a fair amount of research on Kickstarter and. It didn't feel like at that time for like design and like household good kind of novelty products that people were spending a lot of money. And that kind of was my approach in general was like household items. I wasn't really thinking about myself as as an artist yet. I was thinking about myself as like a clever builder who had like found this wrinkle. It, it seemed like a link that if I heard it, I would click on it. So I bet there's other people who would click on it. Like household stuff made from Lego. Like it, it just felt like it could catch. And, and it did. I priced things woefully low. I gave people way too much customization. I was like, tell me your initials. I'll put your initials in it. Tell me what your favorite colors are. It can be your colors. Like not knowing at the time that brick colors can fluctuate in, in price and certain pieces, sometimes like a one by 10, which is like, you know, a piece that big is less expensive than a one by six. And then sometimes like it's, it's wild. So the Kickstarter was successful, but I didn't make any money on it because there wasn't enough margin at all. And then taken like... Sounds like you learned a lot. I learned a ton and a couple companies found me from it. So I got hired directly from the Kickstarter by two companies. And that's where I was able to actually make some money and begin to build a business and end up with like more bricks than I needed to just fulfill the orders. Wow. That's so awesome. You know, this is one of the things that I've developed a coaching program where I talk about, you know, I know there's a lot of these models out there about doing what you love in service to others, you know, finding that intersection of what people want, what the world needs, what they're willing to pay for, like all that. And it sounds to me, you know, the bit I understand of your story that you were willing to take these steps mostly out of your personal passion, desire to share and connect, not out of how can I get rich, <laughs> you know, with Lego, right? And, it, and then it, you found a way to make it work. Where I, my experience is, yeah, people who aim at earning money, I mean, many of these people go to school to become investment bankers or maybe attorneys or something else. And yeah, they make money, but I think there's a difference in the experience when we let our passion lead. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, no, that's a, that's a, a solid, solid point. And like, I also appreciate the, the acknowledgement that you snuck in there. Uh, I think, yeah, maybe it was enjoying being an actor when I was young and seeing that there was a connection between telling stories and, and performing and that leading to, to earning money, you know, for me and for my family that enabled me to go to, you know, private school and help out with, with bills and stuff like that, that I've always had the belief that we can earn an income more than just get by, by doing stuff that, that we really enjoy. And I've supplemented that along the way with like event production and these different gigs and like that I love delivering flowers on Mother's Day. Like I made a game out of it. Like I, I, I was making people happy, but no, I'm not like, I don't believe that it's my, you know, my true path. Not that we necessarily have a single true path, but like to, to be a delivery person, but I still enjoyed it. But I think that the belief that we can create something that we really enjoy doing I 100% subscribe to that. And I also have learned from building this business for over the past eight years, it doesn't mean we're going to enjoy every moment 
it doesn't mean that there aren't elements of it that 100% feel like work or bring us stress or we have like a, you know, just wring our fists and, you know, why, why the heck am I doing this? Those, those moments still happen. Of course, it's not just like, oh, every day is vacation. Like, no, <laughs> like it, it, I love having the perspective of laughing and I love having the perspective of the ludicrousness of being stressed out over a Lego unicorn or of <laughs> a, a mural of, of Donatello. Like it's, it helps me maintain, you know, a, a lightness about what I do, especially now, like when I became a father, it really helped clarify what what stakes are and what matters and what's important and what are things to worry about and and that's been tremendously helpful but but yeah i i i don't think it's naive to think that every single person out there can can make a living doing something that they that they really love it takes effort it's not like your inherent skill or your it's not enough just to want to do it. Yeah. Like it, 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 it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy, but I think it's, I think it's possible for everybody. Yeah. I, I think so too. And I also think if we don't think it's possible to us, it's not. For sure. We won't, we won't even try. 100%. Okay. So before we go to the enlightening lightning round here, well, let me ask this about the book. What, when's it out? The book comes out next year. So it, it'll come out. It's it's a crazy long process <laughs> um, because I've put so much time into it already. But the sales and marketing team want to have a good amount of runway to to push it and to understand it and to get it in front of as many people as possible. And I am all about that. So there are times when I've given you know feedback on notes. There are times when I've said, no, let's do it this way. But basically anything like that's all like the creative and the vibe and the language. But when it comes to selling it, like I trust Penguin implicitly. They've been doing it. They know what they're doing. They've sold a few books. They they 100% know what they're they're doing. And that's a wonderful time for me to step back and be like, this is your area of expertise. You know, make make magic on, on your end. And I'm doing my best to make magic on mine. Yeah. So sometime in 2021. Yeah, early 2021. Awesome. Okay, great. So before we transition to the enlightening lightning round, the, the only other thing I want to cover is about time. I want to talk about time, how you think about time, how you organize your time, how you manage yourself through time, that kind of thing. Because I think your example is people are taking steps into the unknown for themselves, following their passion, finding ways to creatively express themselves and service to others, that kind of thing. Sometimes we don't know what the hell that looks like. You know, what do I do every day? That kind of like, what do I call myself? Like all these kinds of things. And I think if you'd be willing to share a little bit about, you know, how you think about and structure time, that alone could be interesting and useful for people. Terrific question. And it took me quite a while to realize that structure was a huge friend of mine because it felt like during much of my school life, that structure was an enemy that deadlines were an enemy, that they were this thing that would either stress me out or interfere with fun or connection time or, you know, weekend adventures, being outside, doing stuff that I was really excited about. And it wasn't really until I was running my own business that I realized what a gift deadlines and structure can be. I know we all work super differently, but I work really well when I know what's next and what the next steps are. 
And to your point about people who are just beginning the path, it can be really hard to know what to do next when there's not a prescriptive process. And some of that is just guessing. Sometimes it's trial and error. But I organize my time in, in, a, in a pretty flexible way. I, I have an almost two-year-old daughter who I love spending time with so much. My wife is able to work mostly from home, so they get to spend all of the time together, which gives me a huge amount of FOMO sometimes. And then do you have a studio or somewhere you are able yeah, to go? Yeah, I'm there, I'm there right now. So I have a studio that's about 20 to 30 minutes from my, from my place, and I try to spend meaningful time here, like three or four days a week. And I try to do that either early in the morning, because my daughter's on kind of a later schedule, so she sleeps in, which is the best, <laughs> um, or start at home in the mornings, wake up with a fam, have some good fam, hang, and then come to the office and, and work. There's some very intense work time here. And, you know, I'm not at that four-hour work week yet, but I have managed to, to be really, like, really effective with the time that I spend at the office and with the time that I spend from home working. Yeah, I think that, you know, if I was here 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week, like some of my friends work, my happiness would definitely go down. Now, this is kind of the normal schedule. Now, when a Lego unicorn needs to be built, this time frame goes out the window because a lot of the time I will get asked to build something last minute or something else fell through where a client or a company is like they're bringing all of this like rush to me. So it's not like I've waited and put something off and now I have to rush. It's just like the nature of the situation. And then there are times like that 275 hours that I put into the unicorn and possibly more, very condensed. I mean, there were multiple days when I was working 18 to 20 hours in a day, sleeping for a few hours, sometimes at the studio, like just like conking out and then getting right back into it. And then like find, like falling into a zone, being there and like building for 12 or 13 hours straight, like without stopping, without going to the bathroom, without eating, without having a sip of water. And then looking at my watch and being like, how was that 18 minutes? Oh, it was 12 hours and 18 <laughs> minutes. Like, so on a build, time is, is crazy. So when I'm not on a crazy, I'm on a very intensive project like that, I, I work really diligently at having wonderful balance of being able to spend time with my wife and my daughter and our dog. Being outside is super important to me. And then certainly continuing to build the business, communicate with clients you know, build stuff for myself, which you still do. never happens. It happens rarely. But like a new Lego line came out called Dots and Lego sent me a bunch of, a bunch of the pieces from it, which feels like a lot of the same energy and excitement that I had about my Kickstarter. It's about like making practical things and making them beautiful and fun. So I've been building with those and playing with those. I just built a Lego RC car, which is really fun. But yeah, still, still building my skill, becoming continually acquainted with new pieces and parts that are coming out. But yeah, I try to do that in a pretty, um, pretty like rigorous time frame. so that when I'm at my office, it's like, I love people who I share space with, like they're great. And I normally like eat that, eat my lunch at my desk by myself while I work because I want to like get home and see my kid. I want to go on a hike. I want to do these 
these other things. Yeah, that's awesome. When you get into those intensive builds like that, what what's your soundtrack? What do you like to listen to? It depends on the, how hard the build is. It's really challenging. I need something that is like a progressive beat, like pretty high BPM and maybe just instrumental. And then if it's something where like I'm, I've already figured out how to build it and now it's just putting down hundreds of bricks or thousands of bricks or tens of thousands of bricks, then it's like podcasts or like very like word rich, like independent hip hop or like musicals, like stuff with like lyrics I can really digest because they stimulate my mind at like a really wonderful level. I tried having shows and movies on at some point and it did not work at all for me. But like depending on the intensity of the build, it's either like radio heady, like back of the brain, like ambient, but still like not, I wouldn't say it's chill. I would say it's almost always has a pretty high BPM and like keeps me going. Yeah. It's amazing. All these, what are sometimes little things that we figure out how, you know, we work best or what we enjoy most, you know, and we tweak and we continue to evolve. Right. Yeah. It's funny in the acknowledgement section of my book, I give a shout out to like the 12 artists I listened to the most during the making of the book. And when I shared it with Soul Pancake, they're like, I've n- never seen that in a book, but wow. I was like, they were with me for so much of the time that like they deserve a, they deserve a shout out. Are you personally friends with any of those artists yet? I know. So Minneapolis is a really wonderful music scene. And I was an intern at a hip hop label in Minneapolis during my junior year of college and then the summer after. So I connected with some of those artists who like, while we may not still be like super in touch, like they ha- we had that like touch point and a few artists. Yeah. I have some friends who work in, in music. So I've been able to, to, to meet and, and forge some, some relationships. And I've been able to do some like on stage builds oh, at cool. shows, which is really fun. I know um, like, pa- like painters on stage were like a thing for a minute. I've been able to do some really fun builds on stage. That's awesome, man. Well, good. Okay. Well, with your permission, let's transition to the enlightening lightning round. Let's do it. All right. So again, this is intended to be a series of short questions. You're, of course, welcome to answer as long as you want. My intention for the most part is to ask the question and just step aside and just keep us moving. Okay. All right. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a buffet. Okay. <laughs> you want me you, to elaborate? You're welcome to elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Life is like a buffet. There's a ton of items available. Life is like a buffet in that when you go to a buffet, you have a ton of different ideas of what you might want to eat. And then there are innumerable options at the buffet. And you have limited space. Yes, you have limited space on your plate, but you could, you know, get wild with it and have seven plates, but buffets don't let you take anything out of there. And you can only eat so much because you have a finite amount of space in your tummy. So just like we have a finite amount of space with this life, and just like we can't take stuff with us, it's really up to us to determine how we want to fill our bellies, how we want to fill our time. And we can go, you know, soda and bread and, and you know, be really goofy or we can like and, go straight, and soft serve, right. <laughs> or straight to the crab legs. But I think it's really about putting the stuff on the plate that that's going to fill you up in a wonderful way and not put you in a food coma and <laughs> not leave you hungry for more. But like you really want to 
have a great time, feel like you got your money's worth and be satisfied. Life's awesome. a buffet. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Number two, I'm going to borrow Peter Thiel's famous question here. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Ooh. Oh man, it's, it's a good one. I'm trying to think of, of, not like a controversial truth, but of a truth that I feel like a lot of, I get a lot of blowback on. It, it's probably something that I feel when I'm most optimistic. So something along the lines of like, everything is going to work out. There are times when I, when I don't even believe it, but I think when I am at my best and when I am not coming from a place of fear or scarcity or concern, that I truly believe that. And I think as a society, we've become very skeptical. And I think skepticism is very important. A healthy skepticism, a healthy distrust of what we are being told or hear or being invited to believe. And with all of that, I, I think that if we zoom out and have a long enough view, I become very optimistic. I think fatherhood has has maybe forcefully <laughs> solidified some of that optimism. But even, yeah, even when things are, you know, dark and challenging and we, we feel out of alignment with like our leadership or with, you know, actions being taken like at home or abroad, things can feel really yucky and impossible and big and like really like challenging to overthrow or to change. Yeah, I think with a little bit of wide perspective, I think that we're going to be okay. Yeah, I, I think so too. And of course, while you were giving that response early on, I'm, everything is awesome. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, like I go, I don't know if this attracts this kind of person or if this just comes from this kind of person. But And and that was one thing I didn't ask in that first section, by the way, that I do just want to touch on and acknowledge is that you you worked on Lego Batman film. Mm -hmm, I did. Right. And others. And you were a resident artist at Bricksburg. Is that what it's called? We've moved. So it's now, it's now called Rideback Ranch, but it is in essence, it's still very, very Bricks, Bricksburg-y. And there's not a, a Lego movie in development right now. There's like new ideas and some very cool stuff in the works for the future, but they've been very gracious and wonderful at continuing to give me a space to, to create and to support any sort of uh, Lego projects that do come up. That's so awesome. What's this guy, Phil? Phil Lord, Chris Miller. Yeah, I had the chance to to meet him. Uh, my brother, one thing we didn't talk about earlier, and I'm interrupting my own enlightening lightning round, but my brother, I think I told you this when we talked before, that my brother is an awful, an adult fan of Lego. For you, is that a pejorative term or is that an endearing term or a neutral term? Like, how do you see that? Oh, yeah. it's Yeah, I mean, I, I have no, I have very little problem with it being an AFOL, 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 awful, whatever you want to call it. The only thing that I, it's based upon a belief that Lego is for kids. So to classify yourself as an adult fan of Lego, not to say I'm a fan of Lego, but to, it kind of separates. And I don't know if, if that's done to be like, you know, to create a community where AFOLs can, can make more, you know, adult themed things like World War II dioramas and I don't know, a mash set. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Like, that's why it's done. I very rarely use the word adult in when I say how I build things. I think the idea of separating us from younger humans is arbitrary. 
Yeah, very super, super arbitrary. Like I, I speak to my audience as like kids and former kids or kids of all ages. You know, those are those are things that really come up for me. But that's that's the only the only thing that I, I slightly have against the the idea of of an apple being a separate part of this community. Like, why would we have a separate community if we're a community? Let's all share ideas and, and build and, and pieces and, and creations. Yeah, I I, lo- I love that and. In fact, I had a flight. I don't normally talk to people on airplanes. I just do my thing. But I had a chance to fly back to Salt Lake from New York a couple years back, and I sat next to a 74-year-old guy. Turns out he was a professor of law here at the University of Utah. And in our conversation, we were talking about, I started to ask him, what's it like? I think I had just turned 40. So I wanted to know, you know, like how I asked him, how old do you feel? And he's like, I feel young. You know, and I'm like, no, but but how old? <laughs> and 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 he wouldn't give me a direct answer. And I said, well, I just turned 40, and I still feel like eight years old. And he said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so great. So I love that. Kids of all ages. Awesome. All right, I'm going to get us back on track with question number three, which is, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? The first thought that came to my mind is, I love you. Because I think anything with a joke, it would get old very fast. <laughs> Even the most clever turn of phrase, I think, would, would run out of steam after a, a few weeks or months, certainly years. Yeah, yeah, it would be something very, very positive. It's kind of like, like asking like, if I were to get a tattoo, what would that tattoo be? And I've had ideas for tattoos, but nothing's ever stuck around long enough to stick around forever. So yeah, a positive something. You know, we got this. Uh, I love you. I could also always eat chocolate chip cookies. So some, <laughs> some, some sort of invitation for people to give me chocolate chip cookies. I'd be, be super into, yeah, one of those, one of those three. That's great. Thank you. Okay, number four. What book have you gifted or recommended most often? The Prophet, probably. I think The Prophet. I mean, it's very soon going to be brick by brick, but until brick by brick <laughs> takes over and and stands on top of that list for ever, probably, I would say I would say the prophet. It's so beautifully written. It's so interesting. It's such a like a gorgeous perspective, and that it's broken up into different sections from education to career, relationships, life, death, sickness, like all of it. It's it's such a wonderful reference. It's like the closest thing to a like sacred text that I've ever like really connected with in a like practical application kind of way. Yeah, that's that's beautiful and and I actually haven't read the whole thing, but parts of it stay with me, you know, about the let there be spaces and near togetherness and you know and work is love made visible. So, in in what you're saying, I can totally see what little part of it I know. Yeah, there's a there's an animated film where I believe Salma Hayek either produced it or something. She was a, a huge fan of the book, and different artists illustrated sections of it, and it's gorgeous. I super duper highly recommend it. That's great, thank you. Okay, you travel a lot, or you did probably before this <laughs> coronavirus thing, which we're right at the epicenter of as we record this on Friday the thirteenth in March of 2020 which by the time people hear this, it will probably be some number of months later. But at any rate, this question about travel, when you have traveled, what is something you have done as part of your travel, maybe part of your preparation, or something you take with you to make your travel more enjoyable or less difficult? 
carabiners. <laughs> They're so convenient. <laughs> My wife uses me because I always have, I always have them. And then like I use them to like connect my water bottle to the seat back of the seat in front of me. And I have like easy access to my water the entire flight. Yeah. It's probably something as silly as that. It's like light carabiners, some super high utility thing. Yeah. We're also, we've, We've been working on like purging all of the single-use plastic of our life. So we have these bamboo utensils that we use, and they're so great. So bamboo utensils and like a little metal straw is very, very up there. It's basically, I have this fanny pack. It's like a little bit bigger than a fanny pack, and I wear it sort of like a messenger bag. So I don't feel like I get any sort of like fanny pack shame, but it's like a, like a junior diaper bag. And it's not very big, but I fit so much stuff in there. And that bag, the airline doesn't even count it as a bag because it's so like, like sleek. And sometimes I have it under my jacket, but it's, it's great. That bag, I could get like diapers, wipes, hand sanitizer, a couple cliff bars, carabiners, my utensils, ginger for my wife because she gets motion sickness a lot, things like that. I, I feel like having a little pack. I've done a lot of camping. I've been to Burning Man four times. So being able to get like a lot of utility out of a small container, that's, that's the jam. I'm very good at packing. I, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy it. Especially that with, when I travel alone, I bring a backpack everywhere. I went to Israel for 10 days. All I brought was a backpack. Because when I travel with my wife and my daughter, there's a car seat, there's a stroller, there's like all of these other things. So I've been able to like edit, edit, edit down and streamline the items that I travel with. So be hard pressed to find a travel item that doesn't like serve a bunch of purposes and like really kick butt. Yeah. Sim- simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, right? Wasn't that yes, the, yes, Leonardo yes. da Vinci? So that, what do you know who makes that bag, that sling type thing offhand? Hex, I think. I don't know. I have a few, have a few different bags, but that's, yeah. I've only had it for like five months and I already like, I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. One of my guests, he had such a great idea. Alan Weiss, I think I'm getting his name right. He wrote, the world without us, about what would happen to the planet if humans disappeared, which we might find out. But he travels only carry-on, and he wears a, a sportsman's vest, like a fly fishing vest, because he never checks bags. And he says he's able to put as much in his vest as he is a second carry-on, but the airlines don't count it as a... Wow. A, like, that is brilliant. And then his wife wow. laughed at him, but then she saw how well it worked. She got one too. <laughs> oh, right on. That's a great idea. That's so fun. Okay, coming down the stretch. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? well I mean, like starting med- meditation has been huge. I mean, I'll start with starting and then I'll, I'll throw on a stopper. Meditation has been huge for me. What kind of like TM or some other Not style? Not TM. I really like Thich Nhat Hanh and I have kind of created a workable, manageable routine inspired by a lot of what he recommends and what he practices from bringing meditation into into action like a walking meditation breathing meditation like things like that like to me his view of meditation is so wonderfully flexible and adaptive that i feel like i can very gracefully and easily fold it into every day where some more stringent meditation practices which serve people wonderfully i personally haven't been able to adopt a you know, 20 minute every morning, such and such routine. I do have a routine, but it isn't just meditation. 
And then I think something that I've stopped doing is it's, it's, it's less stop and it's really more throttled. It's reducing the amount of screen time that I, that I have early in the day and then late in the day. I both begin and finish my days away from a screen. So my phone doesn't come into my bedroom unless I have a very early meeting or something I need to just use the alarm. But typically, no phone by the bed, no checking the phone. I check my watch. And that's been really, really great in, in reclaiming how my day goes. Because at some point, when I dive into emails and you know now news and, and work, it doesn't really stop. So I get to decide when it starts and I get to decide when it when it ends. So, so taking active steps to be in control of that decision has been, been tremendous. And I sleep great. And, and I think that it has something to do with, you know, one, the blue light not being there. And then two, no, like, was that a vibrate or maybe my phone goes off and, you know, radiation, the sounds, who knows all of these other things that they're doing, but getting the phone out of the bedroom and having quiet screenless time um, in the morning and at night is, has been huge. Yeah, I would imagine that probably has a beneficial effect in your marriage too. I would think, because <laughs> I know that's a complaint for a lot of people. And oh, for sure, know, this idea, especially that the feminine's chief complaint about the masculine is presence. Yes, and I'm not great. I there are things that I can multitask. There are like tasks that I don't even think of multitasking. There are things I can pair together. But being on a phone and active listening are not two things <laughs> that go together at all. So I. I work really hard at being, at not even attempting to do that because I know that I'll fail miserably. Okay. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Ooh, that they matter, that they matter and that they're, they are important and they are loved. I think so much of our divisions come out of people feeling like they're not heard, come out of people feeling like, they are from a bygone era and their time is over and they, they aren't important or their, their views are, are outdated and, and people have outdated views. But even people with outdated views are important and matter. And, and I think if we spent more time reminding ourselves and each other of that, it would lessen the stakes of a lot of these arguments that we have on the surface because I feel like when people don't feel valued or important, they grab on to some beliefs and they make the mistake of thinking that that belief is them and that that belief that is you know, held by other people in their same community or geographic area or whatever, they start associating with that and then they feel personally attacked when that belief gets questioned or when things become new or updated or new information comes out. I think that would be the thing. Yeah. I love that answer. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? It's communication. It's communication from listening. And I had this epiphany a little while ago that we're always listening, but there are innumerable types of listening. There's listening and you really, you're waiting for your turn to speak. There's listening and waiting there's listening and kind of auditing what the speaker is saying because you want to rebut it. And then there's listening where you're no longer listening to the person speaking, but you're listening to the voice in your own head. But all of these things, you're, we're, we're always listening. So I think having an awareness of what kind of listening, 
we're doing. And we can, there's like, I think it's very easy to, to confuse conversations and discussions for, for arguments because there's so much arguing in our society from like debates to the entire court system where a conversation or a discussion has a winner and a loser. And I think we can, especially if we feel like some freedom or something is being threatened or we're being like, sometimes my wife will say something to me and I'll feel like I've like from her perspective that I've done something wrong, even though I don't think I've done anything wrong. So then my natural inclination would be to create a defense and very quickly my goal goes from understanding to being understood and we all want to be understood and understanding i think gives listening intently honestly and openly to the person who's speaking to me gives us a little bit of space to pause our desire to be understood and maybe the perspective to realize the person is speaking also deserves to be understood so having a little bit of a broader view in communication and not relying on communication solely as a means to get our own points across, but as a platform to really hear others and to realize that from their perspective, they're working on getting their point across, to have that, that space, like spacious listening or spacious communication, I guess we could call it, I think is, it is so valuable and it is so hard to adopt into communication because we've been communicating even before we had words we were communicating and many of us have very positive patterns and habits of communication and we all have negative habits of communication whether they developed in our homes because we weren't heard or seen by our parents or they somebody some teacher some person in a position of power had one view and we had another and like or, or that that was how our parents communicated and they were our models 100 percent. it's so challenging to shift into a new dynamic of listening, especially when we see, oh, so-and-so got ruined in a debate. Look at this person getting their, you know, whatever handed to them. Oh, they clapped back. Like there's this idea that conversations have winners and losers. And certainly in a courtroom or on a debate team or in a negotiation or something, there are these like, I don't know, corporate businessy quantitative conversations that happen where there are winners and losers. But I think many of us make the mistake of bringing that dynamic into a loving relationship, into a family relationship, into a friendship and, and wonder why we're experiencing a problem. Yeah. Well, and what I'm hearing and what you're describing, you know, listening in the way that, that I hear you describing is, is an act of generosity. Mm, that's really well said. Awesome. Okay. So last question here is aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or to never do with it? Yeah, compound interest is a magical thing. I think that in response to a super inflated importance placed on money, I think the response is, you know, money can't buy happiness, don't worry about money, blah, blah, blah. And I think the both comical and wrong. And there's been like a ton of studies, you know, when like somebody I think goes from 
earning below the poverty level to like 50 to 70,000, their happiness skyrockets, but then it kind of plateaus from like 70,000 to 700,000 or something like that. I mean, money is an analog for access. It's an analog for freedom. It's an analog for, I, I think freedom is maybe the best word for it. I mean, I took a lot of time off when my daughter was first born and then we had just sold this book and I was expecting this like big advance to come in and the advance was less than I had anticipated. And there was a rather long delay in getting the advance. So I had this time when I wasn't really working and then I was expecting this like windfall and then it was delayed and reduced. And there was this period where I had achieved a lot of things and many typical benchmarks of success, the type of clients you're working with, selling a book to a major publisher, these things were all pointing in a very successful direction. And yet my bank account was dwindling and I was feeling very unstable financially for the first time in a minute. And that kind of helped disassociate the direct connection of like money and success. And it also was the first time that I had felt kind of like at risk with, as a husband and a father. So the stakes were elevated tremendously and it was super valuable time. Like it, I learned a ton during it about spending wisely, about, you know, I was helping my wife out with her business and I was helping some friends out in, in other ways. And it, it, it really, I don't know, it was, I felt like before then I had been on this like trajectory that every year worked a little bit more, charged a little bit more, had some bigger clients and it was kind of like growing and I could, you see this part of a graph, you can kind of imagine what that part of a graph and that part of that will look like. Not that it's going to be a hockey stick up to infinity, but like, you've had enough work come in and it's, if, if a model's been working for a while, there's very reason, very little reason to believe it's all of a sudden going to come to a screeching halt and stop working. And all of a sudden my model wasn't working. So it was wonderfully humbling. But in fairness, you, you did interrupt the model by taking a bit of time off though. That is true. That is very true. But, but I guess the point is there was an interruption in the way the model was sure, performing. For sure. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. No. And thank you for, for, for naming that, that role that I, certainly played in it and would play in it a hundred times out of a hundred more opportunities because there is not a monetary price you can put, I could put on spending time with my brand new person. So yeah, I, I think, you know, and the idea, one of the ideas of this book is not just to inspire people and to promote creativity and outside the box thinking. And, and I give a lot of my examples and my recommendations of what happens when your builds aren't working or you don't have the right pieces or you're frustrated or all of these things. It is also from a business perspective to build something that continues to sell for not just months, but for years and is something that gives me and my family a little bit of a like reliable residual income. And there's back to that through line of the mm -hmm. passive income. Too. For sure. Yeah, I know this is a very roundabout way of saying that like I am still very much a a student of defining my relationship with money and working on both taking it seriously and understanding that it matters, but maintaining the perspective that it is one of many things that matters. It is it can be unpredictable as a as an independent contractor, as somebody who 
who makes their money, you know, through myriad sources. And to your point about compound interest, money is also very predictable. It will do not exactly what you ask of it as the markets are, you know, crumbling right now. But I don't think that this is the end. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I bought, you know, percentages of Bitcoin and a bunch of stock in the last week because I, I, I feel that just as people, you know, we don't make good decisions when we're panicked. We have a limited access to our full spectrum of tools when we're freaked out and scared. And right now we have a ton of people who are freaked out and scared. So, of course, the financial system is going to reflect that. And we're going to see it in this, this downturn in, in value. But the people are buying, people are spending like crazy. <laughs> you got money and toilet paper, you're in good shape. But it's not actually a downturn. It's just an upturn in fear. So, and not by any means that I'm a like <laughs> investor extraordinaire, but it is something that I've been doing over the past couple of years and, and, and learned from and enjoy. So yeah, I think money is, is a thing. Yeah. It's not everything. It's not everything. Yeah. And part of what I just want to reflect back here, first, I, I want to acknowledge you, you know, for what it's worth, for what my acknowledgement is worth about, you know, living in a way in which your actions are aligned with what you value, you know, being willing to take a hiatus from your work to spend time with your wife and your new daughter. And I know people that they don't do that. And my view of them is that they're not happy. And that fundamental lack of integrity, not as a judgment, but that their values and their actions aren't in harmony. You know, and, and so I just want to acknowledge that. And the other thing that, you know, whether this is true or not, I'm sure it's not because I can say it and I believe I have this, this is my own, and here's a tangent. If we can say it, it's not true. <laughs> but this idea that, you know, John Stockton, the Hall of Fame point guard who played mm -hmm. for the Jazz for so many yeah, years, yeah. told me one time that his experience is if you take a day off your, your strength routine, your conditioning routine, that you effectively, it requires two days to get back. And my guess is that money works the same way. Like when you take a break, you kind of not only lose the momentum you had, but it takes more time to build it back up. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But my guess is if you had not taken that hiatus, you would have continued to see that trend go upward more, you know, than trying yeah. to resume it and get that ball rolling again. But anyway, and then the, the last thing that came up is, is you were talking that whether, you know, I, it'll be interesting by the time this, you know, gets published to see how, because we'll know a lot more about this coronavirus and COVID-19 and everything. But I just read an article by Peter Malouk, the, one of these legendary investors, you know, president of creative planning. And, and he is one of, you know, these thought leaders on this topic. And he talks about, he's like, look, it really is this simple. This thing turns out one of two ways. It's either this is basically the end of the world and nothing works. There's no financial strategy that's going to get you through it. Or we markets recover. People still want things. People still supply those things and life goes on. Yes, people will die, but not all of us. So, you know, it's more likely the second scenario is is true. So for what it, you know, again, what it's worth in this conversation, that was kind of what was coming up, maybe atypical of the lightning round, but just wanted to share that. Yeah, that like, I feel like I've said perspective like 150 times during during this conversation, but it it is something that I I feel is so valuable because it's, if we look at an argument that we have with our spouse or something in the moment these can seem like such huge things and to that financial whiz's point it's like oh you're either going to get through the argument or it's the end of the relationship but if it's about like not putting away the romaine 
it's probably not the end of the relationship. Right. Or it doesn't <laughs> so need to like, be. We know it's like, okay, we could close drawers completely. Like that's not the end of everything. And I don't mean to minimize what's going on and for the people who are super at risk and for the people whose jobs have evaporated temporarily during these times. Like this is more than an argument about Romaine. And uh, speaking with my mom the other day, her and I both have asthma. She's obviously, you know, much older than I am and in, you know, at risk zone. But I was like, let's just say what it's not. And let's work back from there. I was like, is it the end of the world? No, I don't think so. Okay. Is it the end of America? No, I don't think so. And we started working back what it's not to just get kind of a better idea of what it is. And even though there are so many unknowns, having, again, word of the day perspective, I think makes, it makes me feel better than buying 64 reams of paper towels and toilet paper. But we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to have some control over what's going on, a, a, a largely uncontrollable situation. Yeah, I going back to what I said earlier about something I believe that maybe some people don't, we are, when I say we, I think I'm talking about the community at large, we are going to get through this and we are going to be okay. Yeah, in fact, and, and I don't mean to be you know glib or simplistic, but I actually think we're gonna, in some ways, we'll be better. You know, because if, if nothing else, clearly this has interrupted our pattern as a society, and any time a pattern is interrupted, it gives us a chance to reevaluate on everything from yeah. you know, look at the patterns of pollution that are not happening in China while the factories are shut down to how aware are we of forces that we can't see, you know, whether they're emotion or the connection between us. And, you know, to reimagine, you know, ways of living as much as there's definitely a downside, it's like, man, clearly what we're doing isn't sustainable. So... If we're not going to make a choice, nature's going to make some choices for us. Yeah, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right on. That's beautiful. Well, okay. Congratulations, you've survived the enlightening lightning round, with the exception of the very final question, which is this. Not the end of the interview, but I want to get it here to make sure it's in. Is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? What website? What social media? Anything else? Part of my reduced screen time has, has reduced my time on Instagram and working on the website and things like that in preparation of the book and making some more episodes that's happening later this year. I am intending to ramp that back up. Instagram, I think, is the best place to connect with me. I, I work on responding to, to every message and, and question and connecting with folks there. My Instagram is peace and bricks, peace like the peace sign, P-E-A-C-E-A-N-D-B-R-I-C-K-S. And then you, you can also message me via my website, which is peaceandbricks.com. You can see work there, but Instagram is the best place to see work. I'm on Facebook less and less, as I think the world is <laughs> to an extent, although they own now WhatsApp and Instagram. So I guess I'm just on different types of Facebooks. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, and then you can if you just go to YouTube and search brick by brick, bricks, the letter X, and then brick again, we're all the top results. So you can watch episodes there and catch up with us as we prepare to put this, this book into the world and more shows into the world and more creativity and support into the world. That's awesome. Okay. And then as an expression of gratitude to you for making time and sharing your knowledge and experience with me and everybody listening, I have gone on to Kiva.org and I've made a $100 microloan on your behalf 
to a woman in the Philippines who uh, will use this money she's gonna, to, to buy sugar, coconut milk, sticky rice, and other ingredients that she'll use in her business to improve the quality of life for her family oh, and uh, for, her, you know, for herself. That's so great. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, so, man, that's so great. That's a, that's a really, really one. No, thank you. That's spectacular. Okay, well, the final part here of the interview, I know we're really at about time, so I won't, I won't go much longer, but as I mentioned before we started recording, I'd like to have a bit of inspiration and maybe advice for people who are following this creative path, specifically those who want to write a book. Maybe a couple questions about what you've learned about marketing and promotion, just because you know many people think the f- publication of a book or the completion of a manuscript is the finish line. But in reality, if it was just a file on their computer or even a printed manuscript, it doesn't. It's not going to scratch that itch for them. So I wonder what might you say to somebody? Like, what advice would you give? What experience would you share for people who want to take their ideas, put them between the covers of a book, and get it out into the world in a meaningful way? Maybe even earn some money with it. Yeah, my path to publishing is has been a, a unique one in that I already had the series that had some built-in fans that I'm working with the material that has built-in fans and that I've established a business with, with the community. So those are all things that I think made my journey a bit easier to, to publication, to creating this book. And it still wasn't easy. It's also a very ambitious book. It's the first time I believe that a Lego instructional book has been created where there are no digital renderings. It is all photographs. So it is not a digital interpretation of bricks. It is photographs of the actual bricks. And it is, it feels, it feels different to me. Maybe people don't even notice. Maybe it's the difference between shooting on film and digital, but to me it was important. But having said that, I think, I think the, the first step is to start. (laughs) It's, it's to, to examine what do you want to say? Maybe why do you want to say it? But I think the why is also, you know, nestled inside of the what. And I got the advice very early on to make a compelling, to make something that's compelling. We get to tell a story that we are uniquely qualified to tell. So what about our life? What about our experience? What about our perspective is unique? And we're all unique and we all have had a different path to wherever it is we currently are. So I would invite anybody who is looking to, whether it's publish a book or start a blog or write articles or a web series or create anything that they're sharing with the world is what do you love? What are you excited about? And what's interesting about your perspective? Because of the many benefits of all this technology immediately at our hands is you can connect with these niche audiences that may be scattered all over that you'd be so hard to connect with otherwise and yet you you know flip a couple buttons and upload something and you're finding these like-minded weirdos nestled in pockets that you didn't even know existed so the connectivity and the the ease to create that that technology how much more useful technology has made it i think the excuses are hard to come by 
for people who want to create and people who who aren't actually creating. And I had this idea when I started Peace and Bricks was practical household things made for made for people who grew up with Lego. And so much of my business has not been household things. It's been art. It's been installations. It's been unicorns. It's been a show. It's been teaching. It's been speaking about creativity and Lego and using them as analogs for, for teamwork and synergy and these things. So following the marketplace and following your audience and not pandering to them, because there's a difference. But I think having an idea of what you want to do, what maybe what your, what your lane is or what your direction is, but maybe it's not a single lane. Maybe it's a four lane highway. You know, we have like eight lane highways in Los Angeles, 16 with both sides, but maybe it's like a four lane highway. And like, you're still going the right way, but not being so committed to this very narrow lane, having a little bit of wiggle room that if the marketplace is like, oh my gosh, we love this thing that you're doing. And you're like, oh no, that was just a one-off. No, no, this is really what I want to do. Maybe being open. To, to doing a little bit more of that or peppering some of that into something else that you were planning on doing. When, when does that, though, become pandering? Like, what is pandering to you and how do you yeah. stay out of it? I think pandering would be if you were to get off that road and take a serious detour and head in another direction. But if, if my goal is to inspire to people to create, to create, to challenge myself creatively, specifically through Lego bricks, whether I'm making high-end furniture for a chic hotel or I'm making a mural for a toy convention. Maybe I'm like more excited about doing the cool hipster chic hotel thing, but the toy convention maybe in some ways is reaching more people. Maybe it, it gets more eyeballs on it and reminds people who are closer to, to creating a, a life as an artist. Maybe it gives them the inspiration that pushes them over the ledge, whereas something in some high-end hotel is already catering to people who are, who are doing those types of things. So I don't know. Like, If I check in with myself and ask myself, is X pandering? I believe that I have the ability to, to know if I was doing something like that. But every build in the book is something that I'm excited about. Every build that I've done is something that I am proud of and that I can share with, with an audience, whether it's something that I'm into, like Lego Masters, I like the show, or if it's for a company that I didn't know existed until I started building their logo. You know, I still take the work that I'm doing seriously. I try really hard at it and I get to create something that didn't exist before. So it's like if you can tack, if you can check a few, a, a few boxes on saying yes to a job, then I would rather do that on 12 jobs than have two jobs that tick every single box. You know, like it's wonderful when they get to be fun and you walk away with more money than you had before. And maybe you get to give a few of your friends some work out of it and you get to use new pieces or pieces in a new kind of way. Like there's all these different benefits, you know, hiding in the margins of a new potential job. So. That's awesome. And that's part of what makes me excited to to see your book and to share it with my kids and to do it with them is that the passion that you're now talking about, about, and I, you know, I can see it in your body language and hear it in your tone of voice about that, the authenticity that, that's there about how you are excited about it. And I know that that transmits as it comes through. It, it wasn't it sound like, oh, this was just something that I'm going to, you know, put on my website and hope I make a few bucks. But in that trance, I really believe that is something in our culture I don't know that we have a strong sense of is that, you know, actions and words convey not only the meaning, but there's an energy associated with them. 
and and that can come through even if we're not right there with the creator of that thing or you know if we weren't aware of what it was necessarily so i know that was maybe a little metaphysical but no, I'm into your it. excitement came through to me. Oh man, I'm absolutely into it. I mean, when I first looked at the schedule of the book and I saw how long I was going to be spending with it, I was like, oh, I have no choice but to love this thing. I have to be excited about it. I have to make something that I'm willing to come back to and look at for hundreds of hours to spend, you know, conference calls on with designers and photographers. Like if it's going to be all of this, this energy and effort, like, I would only be, I would not only be doing a disservice to myself, but I would be doing a disservice to the prospective reader if I didn't put, if I'm just going to go through the motions. Like, it's like if you're an athlete, like if whether you try 25%, 50%, or 100%, if you're playing the game of baseball, you're, you're there for three hours. Like, you're not going to not be there for three hours. So you might as well try to win. You might as well swing your hardest. You might as well go for that ball. And I feel like I've been given an opportunity. I've been given a platform and there's no way that I would take it for granted. And there's, there's, yeah, no, yeah, I don't want to, we want to come at it from the negative. I will absolutely make the most of this opportunity that I'm given because I, I understand that it's a very, it's a big one. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Well, maybe the last thing here that I that I want to ask about is just some, again, of the mechanics of the project. For me, personally, I'm interested in that, and I hope it's useful to people listening. You know, meaning, how did you approach the, the structure of the book? Why did you do it the way you did? How did you, you know, anything from, like, what tools you used? Did you use Microsoft Word? Did you save ideas in Evernote, like sticky notes? Like... How did you, from the big picture of, you know, day zero to the deadline, how did you think of the project in chapters or sections? And then how did you break it down into tasks that you, and what tools did you use? I know that's a lot I'm asking you to cover. So anything you say is fine. Sure. It had been an idea before it started to become real. Just like I had the idea for, for the show for about two or three years before the show actually was in, was in pre-production. But in those early stages, it's, it's very nebulous thoughts. It's kind of like, oh, this, this could work. Let me dog ear that, jot down a note, whether it's physical or digital, or just, just think about something for a while. It was more of a thought exercise than anything. And I think we all do that all the time. Like people who have no thoughts about writing a movie or opening a restaurant have had thoughts like, oh, what if I did this? Or what if I did that? So it, it, it starts there. And then when I was working directly with Soul Pancake, co-producing the book with, who I also do my show with, they do this wonderful job of straddling the left and right brain, of, of yes-anding these weird ideas, and then also figuring out, okay, wonderful, Adam, but your book can't be 7,200 pages of like varying fonts and all of this crazy stuff. But they kind of helped build some structure. So then knowing that the book was going to be 224 pages started to give me an idea of, okay, how, if I look at every build as a story, how many pages does it take to tell the, the story of each build? Okay. How many types of builds do we want to have in the book? What have people been really excited about of the show? Do we want to take some builds from the show and have them duplicated in the book? Because in the show, 
we're very loose and fast and people do watch the show and build along with us, but sometimes people just watch the show to, to get some techniques and some ideas or just put it on to relax to because it's a very chilled out vibe. So thinking about that, but not being attached to a number of builds and then thinking about what else do I want to say? I want to share my story. I want to give some anecdotes. I really love like lists and like picked like, like infographics and like those kinds of things. Like let's get some of that in, into the book to surprise people because you're not expecting it. I think it's fun to have challenges in the margin. I like in college, I think Maxim magazine came out and it was like a magazine. And then on top of the magazine, there were like little blurbs, almost like pop-up video that was like making fun of the magazine. So it was like, yeah, we wrote an art. We actually wrote an article on this. Oh, the guy in this photo. So I was like, oh, that, you know, one of the positive things I can pull from Max. <laughs> it was like, I enjoyed it then. I was like, it would be fun if there were little like blurbs to like maybe clear up something that might be confusing from the instructions, or I can poke fun at the t-shirt I was wearing in this photo we decided to use. So like things like that, these little ideas of things that I wanted in the book and my friend Adam Smiley, who I I know was on your show as well, um, and he's got a new book coming out too. He does indeed. Yeah, we yeah. we spoke a little bit, and he encouraged me to create a list of like everything I want in the book. Like, don't think about where it goes. Just if you want it in the book, just use like whether it's digital, whether it's physical, just make like a list. There's a story, an anecdote, an analogy, a picture, or whatever. So I started doing that, and then kind of understanding these larger portions of the book started to paint a picture about how much space I had to play with. And that was kind of giving me not a time deadline, but like a space deadline. And it helped define the shape and size of some of these things. And it also allowed me to either, you know, give more details of the story or contract the story a little bit or leave stuff out entirely if I felt like it would be redundant. Like even if it was a story that I really liked, if what I learned from the story or the novel experience or something is conveyed elsewhere, let's save that for the sequel or for an episode or for some other space. And let's let the, the book be filled with unique items. I, 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 there are times that I want to remind the reader of things, if it's a building technique, if it's a creative strategy. But there are also times when I don't just want to feel redundant. You know, my parents, I think everyone's parents sound redundant to their, to, their, to their children. I know how it can be frustrating when I feel, and even like when watching a movie, when a movie repeats information, I'm like, you already told me this. You don't think that I'm smart enough. And like, I, you kind of lose me as an audience. So I wanted to be really mindful about what I was repeating and what I would not repeat. I also wanted a book to be that you can open any page and start from there. Because some people open a, a book at the beginning. I, for some reason, open books at the end. I don't know why I've always done it. And then I just flip open something to check it out. Novels are different. Like novels, I normally read the back cover and then go to the beginning. But this is not a novel. This is a non-traditional Lego instructional manual peppered with facts, advice, stories, anecdotes, images, lists, and a lot of fun stuff. So this is the type of book that you're allowed to open anywhere. Yeah, that's a answer-ish of your question. Hit on, hit on some of them. Yeah, part of what to me is really great and what you're saying is number one, 
you know your audience and what you want the book to do for them. Very clear you know, about that. And then number two, you have these very definite ideas, including a number of constraints, which, you know, paradoxically, as we know, constraints can be such an aid to creativity. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the final, really, the I think the final thing that I just want to ask again is this one about promotion, about marketing, about sales, anything like that. So I guess I w- it's kind of a two-part question. One is, what what does success look to you like for the book in terms of, I don't know, units moved, people reached, dollars, anything like that? And then what's your what's your plan to get there? Yeah, I want to, yeah, I mean, I want to sell a million copies. I it's ambitious. I have a web series that's gotten millions of views. I am aligned with a pretty large media company in Soul Pancake, which is now owned by Participant Media. I'm working with a great publisher, and I'm voluntarily <laughs> promoting the biggest toy in the world, Lego. So I think those, and I love what I have to say. I, I feel like it is a story that I'm uniquely qualified to tell. So I think all of those factors will contribute to to moving a lot of books. Something that 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 I have worked really hard on, that Soul Pancake have worked really hard on. Photographer Josh or designer Guillerme, like a ton of energy and effort and love and passion have been put into this. So I want to sell a ridiculous amount of copies, <laughs> and it's ever and it's evergreen. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do with the show and that I attempt to do with a book is not have a bunch of pop culture references about what's happening right now, but to create things that, you know, no episode of Brick by Brick like went viral. There was no like trend that we caught onto. I mean, what we did, we did do a a fidget spinner because we happened to be shooting when the fidget spinner craze happened. And like the episode's fine. Like I'm not embarrassed by it, but it was a little bit like, oh, here's something that's happening. Let's see if we can, you know, capitalize on it. And a little fidget toy is something that I would build out of Lego anyway. I had built built versions before, not necessarily a spinner, but the book is less like that. And it's and just like the show in general is less like that. You can come upon these episodes whenever. And people are continuing to find our first season now and our numbers continue to go up and people connect with it and interact with it as if it just came out. You know, we did a Valentine's Day episode for 2016, I think. So five Valentine's Days ago. And it got passed around this Valentine's Day. Like, oh, the, nobody knows it's five years old. People are just like excited that we were building open Lego hearts and giving them to strangers on the street. So, so I think creating something that will just continue to sell forever, a baked-in strategy to sales from the get and then, yeah, doing things like this, having conversations with people, going on podcasts, connecting with my friends who have audiences. You know, I have some clients who have really big followings, or I've taught kids of people with enormous followings. So getting them copies of the book and encouraging them to read advanced copies or even give me a quote for the cover or for the back cover. So that's certainly something that I've already be- begun to like think about and strategize around, you know, the the biggest promotional push I've ever done was for my Kickstarter when I just reached out to literally everybody whose email I had. I emailed like ex-girlfriends. Like I didn't care. Like I was like, if we have crossed paths at some point, you get to know about this Kickstarter. So like I was promoting it on Facebook. 
I was emailing it to people. I was talking about it to strangers. I was going to the Lego store and chatting to people who were obviously already interested in Lego and showing it to them on my phone. Completely shameless. But I'm not embarrassed about it because I was really proud of what I was creating. Yeah, and you were sharing. I'm sharing, 100%. It is something that benefits every party involved because if, if you don't know about the book and you aren't interested, then you're not interested. But there's, I think, a ton of people who would potentially be interested. So it's my job to get that, get it in front of as many people as possible. I, I love that. I, I love that. And what I love too is that your work is not just about Lego, but about everything you said from the beginning and we talked about throughout, about connection, about creativity, about love, about contribution, about learning and growth and play and all these things. So I, I want to help. So I'm going to buy at least 10 copies. Of your Wonderful. Book. Thank <laughs> and, you. And then if it fits into your strategy, you know, to do live events, you know, we'll know more, of course, when the book comes out. But in cities, let me know. I'd love to host or help organize something here in Salt Lake if that's part of your plan. Oh, phenomenal. We have we have the very beginnings of a book tour plan coming together. Soul Pancake has put out a couple books before. They've done very well. And they've had really fun, unique approaches to the book to what a book tour can look like, what a book tour can be. So I'm very excited once we get to that stage to to brainstorm and play with how we can make that as fun and engaging as possible for anybody who comes out, not just reading a section and trying to, you know, sell a few dozen copies. Yeah. Do you, as a Lego pro, do you use the Lego remover tool or is that oh, just a- Oh my God, all the time. All, whenever I can. Talking about a brick separator, and if you buy a set that has over 250 pieces or so, you get one, and you can also just buy them on their own. But I have hundreds of brick separators. I, would, I used to I have one so. on my on my keys. Yeah, it was, and, and that was the other thing I was going to ask. Do you have a minifig on your keychain, and if so, which one? I have a keychain with T'Challa, Black Panther. Uh, we have a keychain that is a purple brick because purple is our favorite color, and our daughter's name is Plum. And we have a keychain with Wonder Woman. But they're like spare keys. Oh, I, yeah. I keep my keys super light. Yeah. Minimalist. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, dude. Okay, so, and then and then you've probably seen this one, The Hidden Side? Yes. We just ordered that because we knew we were going to be in the home for a little while. Oh, we're, right. Of we're course. That. Okay, the final thing I just want to show you and then, and then I'll let you go. But real quick, now that you mentioned that, I'll be, give me one sec. Oh, you know what? I'll bet I took it off and put it on my other bag. I have, I only have one minifig on my bag and it is, it's Black Panther. <laughs> but I bought I, I bought another bag recently and I've gone back and forth between oh, them well, still. But, awesome. that, but I thought it was here, but it's not. So and then I've got for a while because of the coaching I've been doing, I had that one that was a limited edition, the one from Ninjago, the teacher, the the sensei. Oh, Master Wu. Master Wu, I had him, yeah. and then and then I've had. Man, I brought. I actually had the chance to visit Denmark. I brought back a Luke Skywalker. And ironically, he did lose his hand. <laughs> the minifig lost his hand. <laughs> that's amazing. Like, that's so perfect. And then that's on my, amazing. Then I got a mountain smith bag that I've got the king on. I love the the king. Oh, great. The big gold crown. Crown, yeah. It's so fun. And the cape. Well, man, I wish my brother could have been here. I asked him before, you know, what, and I, he, he didn't know your work, but he, I think he's watched some of your videos on Soul Pancake and that. And so if you come, I'm telling you his collection. I told you a little bit about it when we chatted, but it's next level. Yeah. Oh, dude, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see it. So we could probably, if he's open, and I think he would be, shoot some stuff in oh, know, cool. his basement and stuff. But, man, I, I'm really grateful. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm so glad, you know, Evan connected us, that we're friends. And um, looking forward to staying in touch, man. Yeah, I mean, I was already looking forward to this, and it, I had such a wonderful time speaking with you. You're 
a, a lovely listener and I really I really appreciate so much of what you shared this, this time I can't even believe that it is the time that it is like this absolutely flew, flew by this was a treat well, thank you Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 